Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. COVID pandemic has been one of the most politically and culturally divisive events in American history, which seems odd. Usually a universal external threat unites societies to focus on the common foe. Instead, American culture fractured into different tribes, which often coincided with our pre-existing political factionalism. Adding to our woes, the proper approach to scientific inquiry and policymakers' relationship with the expert class became badly skewed. Once an orthodoxy was declared by the World Health Organization or the Center for Disease Control, government leaders, the mainstream media, and big tech circled the wagons to prevent dissenting views from being aired, and even sought to punish those with differing opinions. One of those caught up in this cultural oppression was my guest. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of health policy at Stanford University and directs Stanford Center for Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. Dr. Bhattacharya's research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations, with a particular emphasis on the role of government programs, biomedical innovation, and economics. Dr. Bhattacharya's recent research focuses on the epidemiology of COVID-19, as well as an evaluation of policy responses to the epidemic. He has published more than 100 articles in top peer-reviewed scientific journals in medicine, economics, health policy, epidemiology, statistics, law, and public health, among other fields. He holds an MD and PhD in economics, both earned at Stanford University. He is also a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, published in the fall of 2020 to great controversy, which dissented against the reigning public health policies being brought to bear against the virus and offered a different approach that would reopen society as we continued to protect our most vulnerable members from illness. Jay, welcome back to Humanize. Great to be back, Wesley. Great to talk to you. Um, just just real quickly, because this is your second time on, but in case people didn't hear the first uh, interview, tell us a bit about your work prior to COVID with the Center for Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. So I'm a professor at Stanford University in the School of Medicine. Actually, before the, I was a professor of health policy, I was a professor of medicine. Um, I do research full-time. Uh, I have an MD and a PhD in economics. And I studied infectious disease, uh, epidemiology, po- and policy. I st- I, my first papers were on HIV policy, actually. Um, and I've been studying it for you know, 20-some years. I also do a lot of work on, on quality of care in, in medicine. Uh, I've worked on, on the economics and epidemiology of obesity. I've worked on, if you look at my, 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 my uh, publication record, you'll, you'll think I'm a little bit schizophrenic in, in all the topics. But uh, a lot of them focus on uh, the effects of government programs and on resource constraints on the health and well-being of vulnerable people. And that's that's uh, informed a lot of my commentary during the pandemic, uh, because I think the policies we've adopted have been tremendously damaging to poor people, to children, to vulnerable people. Yeah, we're going to get into that for sure. Um, but what strikes me is um, when you published the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, you were not exactly a public figure. You were well-known in medical circles, but I don't think you were well-known among the general public. Would that be a fair statement? It's entirely fair. I mean, I, I before the pandemic, 
I'd never published an op-ed. I think I'd been on TV once and it was like, you know, my mom watched it. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, my job was to, was, is to publish scientific papers in, in peer reviewed journals. And, uh, I was very happy when 15 people read them. I mean, cause those were fun 15 people to argue with. Um, I, I don't, I wasn't a public figure before this. And now I would say that uh, perhaps next to Dr. Fauci, you may be the most public figure involved in the COVID uh, um, issue. What was that like to go from zero to 100 miles an hour? <laughs> I, I wasn't prepared for it. it uh, I mean, I, what I really wasn't prepared for was the, the some of the vicious attacks that happened all through 2020 and 2021, whenever I would appear on TV or I would uh, write an op-ed, or even if I write a scientific paper, I would get death threats. I would get, uh, you know, like sometimes racist attack. You know, go back to your home country kind of thing. Um, uh, and it was, and some, and but that, even, those were mostly you could just. I mean, I just deleted them, ignored them. But like, but the, but it was really stressful. The most stressful thing was the was when friends would, you know, betray me or or or, or attack me, you know, knowing me for a long time, but still question my motives. It was very very um, difficult to cope with emotionally, especially early on in, uh, in, in 2020, uh, my skin's grown thicker, uh, over the past, uh, over the past two, three years. Um, this year actually has been a little bit better 2022. Uh, it's quite remarkable. Um, I guess we could talk about the policy that was initially pursued by the federal government and many state governments and many uh, societies around the world was, uh, I guess that would be called zero COVID, correct? Yeah. And what was the point of zero COVID? Well, I, I think the the idea is that this is that COVID and the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus is such a dangerous threat that it, it is warrants essentially an entire reorganization of society in a bid to eradicate it from the planet, to reduce the risk to so low that uh, or, 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 or zero so that we no longer have to worry about it. Uh, the idea, I mean, I think if you're going to make a case for it, the idea would be that while well, we just buckle up for the next n weeks and months and years, until we've gotten rid of it, we can't ever go back to normal. It would be the premise of the zero COVID. Um, and uh, the, you know, there was there was some um, there were some groups inside uh, Western countries that were pushing for the same kinds of policies through 2020 and 2021. Um, that, that, that strikes me as odd because we've had worse epidemics than this one or pandemics. Uh, the, the, you didn't close down the entire society during the uh, what's called the Spanish flu. Of course, uh, I'm old enough, you're not, but I'm old enough to remember the polio um, yearly uh, epidemics or endemic uh, polio attacks with uh, children and iron lungs and so forth, and yet society didn't shut down even before the um the polio vaccines, smallpox uh, was far more virulent and deadly than um, COVID, and yet we didn't close down for that. What made what made this kind of uh, almost hysteria um, take hold? Do you think? I, I think there's two related things. Um, one one is that uh, you know we we uh, I, I, although it, it is. It, it's true that we are like as humans we're subject to these kinds of risks of these natural risks of pathogens i think in the west we kind of forgotten about that like we 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 had assumed that we'd somehow conquered infectious disease to the point where we really never needed to worry about it and i think when when you had a disease like this arise out of seemingly out of the blue it uh, it it absolutely shocked people that it, into the sense of this like mortality that, that we face like look we actually are subject to this kind of medical risk and we don't necessarily have control over that medical risk so that's one side of it and then and on the other side and maybe seemingly a little bit contra contradictory to this um, we 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 have this hubris that we can control everything that and we have technology that allows us to I mean within within days of of the, the the sequence of the virus being published, we had a t a PCR test that could detect it. We had a vaccine candidate. We had this idea that we could develop and deploy a vaccine at scale within you know nine months or a year. Um, we 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 have this this technology that allows you know a certain class of people to to live at home without having to worry about be going out going out to work and facing the risk of the disease. We have this technology that allows us to think we can have we can control. The risk from this pathogen. Um, so you have this, like, on the one side, this like shock that we are actually 
vulnerable humans, vul humans vulnerable to pathogenic risk. And on the other side, this hubris that we could control. I think those two things were the, were, were the explain why we had this, uh, this response to this pandemic. In a sense, like Zoom caused the lockdowns. Without <laughs> Zoom, you don't have the lockdowns. I mean, think back to 2009. There's H1N1 pandemic. Um, and we didn't lock down. We, well, we didn't have a, a technology that could protect a certain class of people you know, at the sort of at the top of society, the laptop class that, uh, that, that back, back then, they would have, if we'd locked down, faced tremendous, uh, you know, tr tr tremendous cost to their, their lives and livelihoods. Um, and they didn't demand locking down. Now there's a, there's do. an implication here that I find very interesting. And that is that the people who were the most vociferous for the lockdowns were going to be the ones least personally affected by it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, the people who paid the harms and the cost of the lockdowns were the people that were the most vulnerable members of society. Uh, a, uh, like the, I think as the World Bank, they put out an estimate that, that almost 100 million people or more would be thrown into poverty as a consequence of the lockdowns, these, these estimates came out in like 2020. Uh, that uh, There was an estimate for the UN that tens of millions of people would be put into dire food insecurity worldwide as a consequence of these lockdowns. And you can make, it makes sense, right? You have a supply chain um, that, is, uh, that is that disrupted. Well, what is that? The pointy end of the supply chain is some poor uh, person in, the, uh, in, the, in, a, in a poor country who's barely making, making, uh, you know, making a living feeding, so he can feed his family loses his job and now he's making less than two dollars a day of income and they, the family starves that is the yeah. pointy end of a supply chain disruption um that is that's that's actually the actual lived experience of lockdowns is the the is is the poor person in these places lives and livelihoods utterly destroyed something often unto, unto death uh as a consequence of these of these policies whereas you know, I, I can sit in my, uh, I'll just personalize it. And I don't want to like point fingers too much. Uh, if I, I can, I, I'm not going to lose my job. I mean, I might have lost my job because I spoke up, but like, but the, I, I'm not going to, I'm not inherently going to lose my job. I can replace my job with Zoom. I can, I can do my work remotely. I can ask for people to come to my door and deliver food to me. I can, I mean, all of that stuff is like a, a, a ridiculous privilege that's available to only a relatively small fraction of the population. But that small fraction of the population controlled the policy. Yeah, that's true. And and I wasn't affected in the same manner because I'm a writer. And I could write at home, and which I always do anyway. And so there was a certain uh, class of people, if you will, uh, that really kind of skated above all of the hardship. Not that, that, not that it was fun. I mean, you know, you don't like to not be able to go out and do things, but we weren't the ones at any material risk. Um, but I do have one memory that I think may have added to it that you didn't bring up. I remember when the um, COVID first really hit hard, it hit particularly in Italy. And in Italy, uh, uh, emergency rooms were being overcome and swamped. And there was this great fear early in the uh, uh, 2020, during the uh, initial rollout of illness, that our hospitals were going to be completely overwhelmed. Um, and so, I mean, President Trump, as I recall, sent a, a Navy hospital ship to New York and they set up all of these beds just in case and it never came to pass. But I think that experience in Italy may have had also an impact on the idea of, oh, my gosh, we've got to lock down. I think you're absolutely right, Wesley. I mean, I think if you look at back to uh, February 2020, uh, January 2020, uh the Italian experience shocked people around the West. Like how could a Western country have uh, coffins lined up in cathedrals? So many dead um, uh, hospital systems where people are panicked and, 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 and unable to treat people even with basic, uh, basic other uh, you know, medical conditions because they're so overwhelmed by this one disease. Um, and the contrast was with China, China locked down in January, 2020, and successfully eradicated the disease as far as as far as people were concerned in the West. They, they'd conquered through this drastic social policy this this deadly pathogen. Yeah, but the and we see it uh, as we're recording this. China has engaged in another zero 
uh, COVID policy to the point that they've actually closed down cities as big as Shanghai, which has as many people as Florida, and have welded people uh, in their apartments. There was a fire with uh, more than 40 people killed, including children. Um, So even in China, (laughs) we can see zero COVID doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I think that January 2020 picture that China painted of a successful policy, uh, draconian lockdown policy, successfully eradicating COVID from the shores of China or Wuhan, um, uh, versus the uh, versus the Italian failure, that was an illusion. It was yes. a false idea of what, what the efficacy of lockdowns were or even the harms of the lockdowns. Um, in fact, um, you know, if you, I think there's an illusion on two sides. On the Chinese side, it's not clear exactly why the disease didn't spread all through China. It's actually really curious. It's not as if Wuhan is blocked off from the rest of China. Um, there's some indications that I think is, is likely to, is the case is that this disease emerged er, much earlier than people have let on. It probably emerged in 2019. August, September. There's evidence for this, for instance, from stored blood uh, in blood banks in in Italy and in um, Angola, I think, where they found COVID antibodies that are specific to COVID don't don't cross react with other 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 uh, uh, other coronaviruses or other things. Um, they found in, in stored blood from September of 2019. And uh, there's like cremation data out of China that suggests that there was sort of lots of extra cremations in Wuhan in October, November 2019. Um, you know, there's 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 all kinds of like uh, indicators that this this was a pandemic that started sometime in the middle of 2019, not in late December 2019. And, and it, it sounds like perhaps, uh, in fact, of course, there have been accusations of this, that China suppressed that information to the detriment of the entire world. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's some aspect of a cover-up that happened, uh, certainly in December. Although I have to say, like, if let's say it ha- the, the, the start date is right. I don't know what the start date is, but let's say the start date is right, September, August, September 2019. Um, they may not have known, right? You have mm-hmm. this, like, disease that's spreading, this unknown disease that, that's causing flu-like illness. And they're like, they just didn't know that it was a new thing originally. Uh, now, if it was a lab leak and it was a leak, that 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 the the, the lab laboratory was happening suspected and they reported higher up and they didn't do anything about it. That's a different story. Then they then they knew and they covered it up. In either case, we were acting in ignorance when we th- thought that the disease was spreading in January 2019, uh, 2020. In fact, it started much earlier and potentially it spread earlier in in in, in part, and certainly seeded countries everywhere. Like you don't see this massive outbreak in so many parts of the world. Remember, like there was Iran. You saw an outbreak in 20, early 2020. Um, the earliest cases in the U.S. were actually in January 2020, um, at least the reported ones. Uh, although I suspect, again, it was in the U.S. earlier also. Um, we st- when we got the test, we started seeing the cases. But th- before we had the test, before we realized they were there, there that doesn't mean there weren't cases there. which just meant we weren't seeing them. Um, the, the other part of the illusion is, is Italy. Uh, you know, the Italian healthcare system is is such that it, 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 it often is over, overwhelmed by surges in demand, even in non-epidemic seasons. Um, and uh, it's, not, it's not overwhelmed to the same extent, but we were paying attention this time to that overwhelming. Um, you know, I heard a story from New York that the reasons why, reason why in the early days of the pandemic, you'd see these, these, uh, these, these uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, bodies that were in refrigerator trucks waiting to be put to morgues and they couldn't, there's so many, you couldn't get them into the morgues. The reason why is because caretakers and funeral directors were closed because they were scared to, scared to like operate. And so they're, they were lined up, not because of necessarily the total, the, like the overwhelmed, it's not necessarily just the demand side, but also the supply side that matters here. Oh, um, that's very know. interesting. So there was a, a backlog of, of being able to uh, uh, bury these bodies because the morticians and the people who deal with dead yeah. dead bodies were afraid to engage their 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 work. Yeah, so you have now that's this, very interesting. I mean, so you just like you have, so again, it's 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 fear that leads to uh, an illusion of what the right policy ought to be. You compare the Chinese response, the Italian response, and uh, in fact, there's a 
really interesting exchange that happens early in the pandemic. Um, the NIH, the U.S. NIH, and Tony Fauci's uh, uh, NIAID in particular, th they want to send somebody on this mission to China that the World Health Organization is, or, uh, is organizing to see what happened in China and what, chi what the Chinese did, whether it worked or not, the lockdown. Um, they worked very hard to get Cliff Lane, who is Tony Fauci's deputy, on this mission. You can see this from FOIA emails. Um, he goes to China, and he, uh, he, he comes back from China. Uh, the World Health Organization writes this little, this report, um, which Cliff Lane is, is, is contributed to. He, he comments on the report, says, uh, it lo what looked like what China did worked, this all-of-government approach, zero-COVID kind of thing, um, but albeit at great cost. And in the email to a uh, to World Health Organization official, she, he writes, um, it's going to take more than just the people in this room to decide if this is what we ought to do. It's very clear that Cliff Lane and the NIH decided that what China did worked. And then they recommended, including Tony Fauci, recommended to the government, um, actually may even have controlled it, uh, that we also adopt a similar all-of-government approach. Though it, it explains kind of a mystery why, you know, remember in February 2020, the U, in the U.S., so many public health officials were saying, okay, just stay calm, um, we'll figure out who's, who's at risk, uh, let's, let's follow essentially the old pandemic plan that you talked about earlier, Wesley, this idea of like, let's focus on protecting vulnerable people, but don't, don't panic the rest of society. Um, that was the original plan that we followed in February 2020. So when, um, when President Trump shut down flights from China, it, a lot of the public health establishment was shocked and pushed back. And, you know, they use this like, use this thing to like uh, essentially attack Trump as a, as a racist for, uh, for shutting down Chinese travel. But then, then he shut down European travel. Um, uh, so it, it uh, for a lot of the, the public health establishment, they were, their pushback against Trump partly may have been partisanship at, part, at the time, but also partly because that's what the old plan was. And it had worked for a century. This old plan of how do you manage respiratory virus pandemics is by focused protection of vulnerable people, developing therapeutics as rapidly as possible, developing vaccines as rapidly as possible, don't disrupt the rest of society. That was the plan that they had in mind. Overnight, they changed. Mid-March, all of a sudden, lockdown's the only way. State of emergency, let's, let's, let's lock, lock everything up. That is exactly what they did. Uh, they shifted over, overnight. I mean, they, they, why do they do that? In part because of the Chinese example and the, the Italian counterexample. That's that, that's interesting. And I remember that the biggest names in bioethics and public health, Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, was was uh, writing in the New York Times and other places, we have to shut down the society. He said for 18 months, as I recall, Fauci was saying shut down. Um, uh, I guess Francis Collins, uh, the then head of the NIH, was saying shut down. And at some point, you <laughs> uh, said, hold on, I dissent. And uh, that's not easy to do. What, what drew you into the vortex of what became a tremendous controversy? Um, I, I mean, I, this is what I do for a living. I've been studying uh, infectious disease uh, policy for two decades. I've been studying the consequences of social policies on the well-being of, of old people, on children, I've actually even studied nutrition and published in nutrition. Um, I, pub I published on on on, on a, a how government programs uh, and resource constraints, individual resource constraints, affect the ability for people to, to uh, especially poor people, to be healthy. I, that's what I do for a living. That's what I, I've been researching on. When the lockdowns hit, my first thoughts were to the damage that these lockdowns were going to cause to children and the poor and the vulnerable people around the world. It was so obvious that uh, the well-being of all those, all those, all these people re requires society to be functioning well. You think about an economy as like, oh, it's money made, and you look at the stock market and think it's just rich people. No, it's actually lives. It's, it's people that don't starve at the bottom of society. It's people, if, if, if economy is functioning well, it lifts people out of poverty, and then they don't starve. It's kids that can go to school uh, instead of having to, 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 you know, actually one thing that happened during the pandemic, when the schools closed in poor countries, a lot of little girls were sold into sexual slavery. 
Oh my. Because the parents couldn't afford, you know, they would go to school, they would get their meals at the school. They couldn't really afford to keep them. We put, we put poor people in this tremendous bind as a consequence of the economic damage caused by this. It's not just simply, I mean, I remember early in the pandemic, the, the ethic, the ethical dilemma was lives versus dollars, right? But yeah. that was nonsense. It was so clear to me that it was always lives versus lives. The question was, whose lives do we care about? Who's, who can best support the, 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 uh, the, the, the cost of the policies that we're adopting? Um, and it, it was so obvious to me based on my, my research, my background, my, my, my thinking. But I mean, I don't know. Just it was, it was, it was the, the idea in my head was so clear that this was going to cause damage to the poor, a generational inequality, a generational damage that will be would be almost impossible to recover from. And I, th- I think you're, you're exactly saying basically that COVID policy caused more harm than COVID virus. There's no question in my mind about that. And because we're, we're still paying, we're going to be paying the cost of this for for decades. We meaning like especially the the poor and the vulnerable that have, that, have, that have been harmed the most by it. Um, you know, it's like I just give you one thing from, from one statistic from the United States. There was an estimate from early in the pandemic that the school closures, well, what, when you close schools, I mean, it's, you know, some families can replace the, the closed schools with what, like tutors and, and other things, but most families can't do that, especially the poorest families. And, you know, you Zoom school, how do you teach a, how do you teach a five-year-old or six-year-old to read on Zoom? I mean, so yeah. what you have is you created this, this situation where like, especially the poorest kids, minority kids, their education is disrupted. There's a social science literature on this, Wesley, from that predates the pandemic that suggests that, that that kind of investment pays huge dividends into the future, right? So kids that skip school for even rel- relatively short time because they're forced for whatever reason to skip school, like they have lo- less schooling, they lead less healthy lives. They are poorer and they lead less healthy lives and they live shorter lives. So one estimate published in JAMA Pediatrics early in the pandemic suggested that just the spring closures in the United States alone cost American school kids five and a half million life years. Why didn't that penetrate uh, the conversation that the nation was having? I mean, I think there was moral panic. We were so focused on one risk, the risk of COVID deaths, that we forgot that there's so many other priorities in life that are absolutely essential and not to, they're not just optional, you know, okay, we can get rid of money for a little while. We can forget about our economics for a while. It's not, it was never lives versus money. It was always lives versus lives. It's, that's how social policy always is. There's always right. trade-offs. There's always nuance and subtlety. It's as soon as you decide that social policy is about a single thing, then you've lost your, you've lost your way because you, all the other important things that 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 are important to people get tossed aside and those things are not those things are like it's and it's usually the the, the, the poorest the most vulnerable that pay the cost of that we don't Which even is why policymakers really aren't supposed to just focus on one school we'll say of expertise that they're because there's a lot of uh, balls in the air there's a lot of conflicting priorities but it seems like and and i think the media has a lot of blame to this that the media focused on the only thing that matters is what Dr. Fauci says or what the World Health Organization says. And Dr. Fauci, because of his position, he wasn't thinking about education. That isn't his area of expertise. His area of expertise was infectious disease. So he's thinking about the infectious disease, and let's assume he's in good faith for the moment. Um, But so the media is thinking, well, it's what Fauci says, but Fauci's only looking at a, at a small piece of the entire picture. That old joke about the elephant where people who can't see one t- has a, t- touches the tail and, and describes it one way, one touches the leg and describes it a different way. That's what that, that kind of compartmentalization, I think, was very harmful. And I think the media bears a great deal of blame for this and the politics of the time. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that so the. You know, if you listen to some of the early appearances, actually almost every appearance of Dr. Fauci in the Senate when in front of Rand Paul or other places where he's pushed a little bit on this, he evinces this like almost blindness to the collateral harms of the lockdowns, an absolute shocking blindness to the collateral harms of the lockdowns. It's as if he doesn't even see them. Because, he, he, because, he's, a, because he's a specialist in a different area. 
But yet and, we put him essentially in charge of American domestic policy for two years, three years. Yeah. Like I, th- I think the guy's ruined two presidencies um, with his advice. Um, it's, so, uh, you know, I, <laughs> uh, let me interrupt just for a second. One of the things that really bothers me is that when this starts going and people who are very um, reputable like yourself and others that ended up eventually creating and signing the Great Barrington Declaration, why weren't you guys called into the room to discuss this stuff? Because that's what science is supposed to do, right? Yeah, it was the other way. In fact, what happened was that a small group of scientific bureaucrats at the very pinnacle of, of huge scientific bureaucracies that fund scientific uh, scientific research, bi- bi- biomedical research and science, but also not just fund it, but like determine the social pecking order of scientists within within these fields, they decided that they knew best what to do. They decided that that they that they that they you know you can hear it in to- when when Tony Fauci was asked he said like if you criticize me you are not simply criticizing a man you are criticizing science itself yeah he said I represent science I represent science I mean that is absolutely a, a shocking level of hubris to say that uh, unironically I mean, can you imagine it's like it's almost as if he said he's God um, you know the high pope of science the, they thought about science as effectively. A, a, a clerisy with them at the very top, and maybe Tony Fauci is Pope. <laughs> and they and anyone who disagreed with them were obviously pseudoscientists or nonsense, or they were they were just obviously not worth paying attention to. No matter what their credentials, no matter what their what what their their reasoning, no matter what their logic, um, which, and they which, acted which, that way. Yeah, which brings us to the Great Barrington Declaration, because at some point, obviously, you and your colleagues were frustrated by what you just described. And got together in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and had a conference and published a document out of that called the Great Barrington Declaration. Tell us about how that came to be. Uh, so, uh, Martin Kuldorf, who's a professor uh, uh, of, uh, of biostatistics and, uh, and, and I think epidemiology at Harvard University, uh, now on leave from there, but uh, he, he and I got to be friends during the pandemic. He called me and, and said, "Jay, I've got. Uh, did you, would you would you be willing to fly cross country to Great Barrington, Massachusetts? I got uh, a place where we're going to like can have a conference together." I'm like, "Okay, great. I, you know, like, is it going to be a big big conference?" I'm like, no, no, just just me, you, and Sunetra Gupta. That's enough. If I get to meet Martin and Sunetra, I'm like, I, I have to. Sunetra Gupta is a professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford University, one of the the finest epidemiologists in the world. Truly, most one of the most accomplished epidemiologists in the world, I think. Um, and so, uh, when Mar- and Martin said there'll be other some journalists there, the, the goal would be to just to talk to the journalists and tell tell them about epidemiology, about like the broader view of epidemiology than the than journalists had been covering. I I, ju- I hadn't flown in months because it was because oh, the lockdown. I jumped at the chance, flew across country. And it was, I mean, when we uh, when we got together, it was really clear that we had arrived from slightly different directions at the same point, which was that uh, we should not be doing, that, 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 that first, that there was a steep age gradient in the mortality years from COVID. Older people are really high risk, younger people are much lower risk. Um, second, that there was deep damage from these lockdowns, especially to young people, especially to, 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 to less vulnerable people. And, that, and largely the lockdowns hadn't succeeded in protecting vulnerable people. Um, so that was that. So that was so we'd agreed on that diagnosis, and the, and then the prescription we'd also agreed on: focus protection of vulnerable populations. Take our resources. By that you mean elderly people, people with immune deficiencies, and so forth. Yeah, and and there may be others with with certain chronic conditions that put them at high risk, multiple chronic conditions. Um, f- focus our ingenuity, our creativity, and our resources on protecting those populations specifically. Whereby don't uh, don't lock down to harm children who are at very low risk from the virus. The premise is that we could somehow, by locking down, protect vulnerable people. But that premise was wrong, right? Society is deeply unequal. It's as we've been talking about: poor people really can't abide a lockdown. Uh, it, it was bound to fail. You can't expect society to stop the uh, breathing near each other. And expect that, expect that to succeed for very long. Um, and uh, as uh, so, 
so let me interrupt. It sounds like you were going back to the original plan to fight an, uh, a pandemic that you described earlier. Yeah, so that's the Great Branching Declaration. It's the least original thing I've ever written in my entire life. <laughs> uh, it's the original, I mean, and that's why I knew it was right. It was, a, it was standing on a century of wisdom, not my wisdom, the wisdom of like far better epidemiologists and scientists than me. Um, and so, so that's so we wrote this document uh, in uh, in October 4, twenty twenty, put it on the web, and allowed people to sign it, and it went absolutely viral. Uh, tens of thousands of doctors signed it, and and, and scientists signed it. Uh, Nobel Prize winner signed it, a lot of very prominent people from all all, all around the world and prominent universities signed it. Um, and uh, almost a million people now to date have signed it. Like you know people people who don't necessarily have epidemiological expertise, but have seen the damage from lockdowns and seen the inefficacy of the lockdowns. Um, well, well, that thing, that, that declaration and the reaction to it showed that um, the elite that you described earlier who thought, okay, we're going to make, you know, hold decision-making close, there was a lot of disagreement. It seems to me that in, in good science, which is a method of trying to determine facts and so forth, that at that point, the a heterodox view, if you will, the view you're expressing, should have been opened up um, to to open discussion, and there should have actually been a coming together of people like Fauci and Collins and, and Bhattacharya and and your other colleagues to kind of reason together. But that didn't happen. Instead, uh, according to documents that were released um, through the Freedom of Information Act, I think Francis Collins wrote an email to Dr. Fauci and said, these are fringe people and we have to suppress this idea. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. So we write it on October 4th, put it on the web, goes viral. On October 8th, four days later, Francis Collins writes to Tony Fauci, says, who are these three fringe epidemiologists who put out this thing? Fringe epidemiologists meaning me, Martin Kuldorf, and Sunetra Gupta, you know, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford. Um, and uh, he called for a devastating published takedown of the premises of the Great Branton Declaration. Right. Now, before, before this, Collins, of course, is very well known in public health, and Fauci is too. Had you met either of those two gentlemen? No, although I admire Francis Collins my entire life. I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian, and to, uh, to see a, a, a man of such accomplishment in science also expresses his Christianity in public was, was, had been deeply moving to me. Um, to see him, to see in print the way he acted during the pandemic is, is still just, I'm still processing the shock over that. Um, but he, the, the, you know, that devastating takedown, the form it took, Wesley, was a, was a, uh, was essentially like a propaganda campaign. I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip. In effect, why I wanted to kill grandma, uh, why I wanted to, what, 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 you know, uh, Questioning why I was interested in a herd immunity strategy, you know, the 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 the, the Great Branton Declaration did talk about herd immunity. It has to talk about herd immunity. The end point of this pandemic is herd immunity. When a sufficient number of people get infected and recover, or, or get the vaccine and, and have some have some level of immunity, what happens is a decoupling of cases and uh, cases and deaths. Uh, when you have people that have had immunity, either again through infection or the vaccines, um, it's not that you can't get infected again. Uh, you know, especially when there's a new variant, you might. It's that you uh, the the infection is less likely to produce severe disease and death than it was the first time you were infected. When you're immune naive, population like we were in March 2020 is a lot more vulnerable to this infection than than uh, than when 95, 100% are. Um, and that, that, that's, I think, where we are now. Yeah, it sounds, you were just describing, it sounds like that's where we are now in the sense that, you know, I, I got it uh, um, back at, in September for the first time and I was sick for, you know, and I, but I've been vaccinated, but I was sick for two or three days and, yeah. and not seriously ill. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the decoupling of cases and deaths. We don't have a technology to prevent you from getting it. Lockdowns don't work. The vaccines don't work for that. But we do have technologies and including like recovery from COVID. Is it is it is it, if you think of it as a technology? I don't know if, if that's the right word. Um, the the uh, that 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 make it less likely to die if you were to get COVID again. Um, so so that's that's the end point. But that this was used in this propaganda campaign as if we were trying to intentionally infect a very large number of people. 
it's it's like it's uh, Martin Kulder made this joke. Um, if it's like talking about a gravity strategy to land an airplane, you know, gravity exists whether you want it to be there or not. Herd immunity exists whether you want it to be there or not. The only issue is how do I land the airplane safely so that the fewest number of people are harmed, hopefully zero, from the landing. Um, with, with this pandemic, the question was, how do I, what policies do I adopt to protect the most vulnerable as best I can while uh, the, the, while we, uh, until the point where we reach herd immunity and, the, and, the, and then the pandemic's over? What do we adopt a lockdown, which didn't actually prevent very many people from getting sick, really did harm so many poor people around the world. I mean, that's not landing the plane safely. Or do we adopt a focus protection approach would have had, it's not like a panacea. Sorry, focus to, protection? The focus protection of vulnerable people, like the, the, like the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, that was never a panacea. Like there, we had no panacea. We had no perfect way out of this where nobody would get hurt. It's a deadly disease. Um, the only thing we had available was that choice. Who to protect? Where do we put our resource to protect? We chose to protect the laptop class. I call it uh, trickle-down epidemiology. The theory is that we protect the laptop class. Everyone's protected by osmosis. That's the policy we actually adopted, focus protection of the laptop class. Instead, we should have adopted focus protection of vulnerable people. And you can, and, you know, an example of this is uh, in the early days of the pandemic, why did we send COVID-infected patients, elderly patients, back to nursing homes? Well, that was a disaster in New York, Michigan, and other places, New yeah. Jersey, I believe. And, and you know, people talked about it as like this criminal thing. It, it may be, but I don't, I don't know about that. But I, what I do know is that it was an intellectual error. The idea was let's protect hospital systems rather than let's protect vulnerable people. If we had taken it into our heads as the primary goal of COVID um, mitigation policy was to protect vulnerable older people, we would never have done that. It was a deep intellectual error because we had the wrong goal in mind. Focus protection should have been at the front end of everybody's mind in, in the earliest days of the pandemic, not protection of hospital systems, not two weeks to flatten the curve, not zero COVID. All of that was all misdirected energy. The energy should have been, let's, we, and we knew early on it was older people that was high risk, let's protect the people that are highest risk. Let's adopt policies creatively to protect those older people. So let's just assume for a second that, um, your position is not the correct one, but it's certainly a re reasonable one and certainly a responsible one. And rather than engage the conversation, which again, I think that's what good science does and what good public policy does and what good media should have been doing, uh, there was a, a suppression that went on. And I did a little bit of research. Reddit deleted the Great Barrington Declaration. Facebook deleted the Great Barrington Declaration. YouTube deleted a public health roundtable featuring uh, the Great Barrington Declaration authors. So there was a, um, rather than an engaged, all right, we're going to prove Jay Bhattacharya is wrong and we're right, there was a, an attempt, certainly in, in the uh, social media companies, to not let you speak at all or be heard at all is probably the better term. And the question then becomes, was that pushed by the government and by um, policymakers such as Fauci and Collins and others. And we've already seen that they wanted to suppress your point of view. Uh, and now we've subsequently found out, and uh, just a about a week, a uh, few days before this is recorded, that Twitter shadow banned you, uh, made it so that uh, you would uh, you were on what's called a trends blacklist, so that if people were writing about what you wrote or trying to retweet it and so forth, it would never appear in people's threads. And so the question then, of course, becomes, did Twitter, did Facebook, did Google, did these other places do this on their own because, oh, Fauci was against them and we, we believe Fauci? Or was there some kind of push by authorities to get them to do that? Do you have any idea about that yet? I mean, this is one of these things where, like, the evidence in plain sight is so easy to see that it's easy, that in fact it's weirdly easy to miss it. Uh, the uh, federal government 
through the CDC and other sources, systematically made efforts to try to suppress discussion in online circles and in media that contradicted public health orders. So all of those things that say, you know, COVID-19 information, um, click here to go to the CDC in every single social media outlet, uh, all of that was openly done. And it was instructions from the federal government to social media companies and other places, essentially saying, this is what is the permissible discourse. And I've been part of this uh, lawsuit that the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's offices have brought against the Biden administration. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. What we found is like a dozen federal agencies in regular contact with social media companies telling them in many cases what to suppress, what ideas to suppress, and in some cases who to suppress. And you were one of those? Uh, so I, I, I probably shouldn't talk about specifically whether I, I, I show up yet in those. Um, what's more important than me particularly, Wesley, is that is that, that, that effort took place at all. Yes, uh, I agree that, with that. I mean, that essentially what that means is that the federal government's delineated the acceptable bounds of discourse about COVID. Well, policy. this is a First Amendment issue because if the uh, social media companies just decided we're going, we believe Fauci and Collins and we're going to stop anybody else on our platforms from uh, discussing other um, uh, ideas. That would be one thing. They're certainly allowed to do that, although I think it breaches their contract, at least their moral contract with the people. But if they were doing so at the behest of the government, then that is a First Amendment freedom of speech infringement. And is that what your lawsuit's about? That's exactly what the lawsuit's about. I think that this is the, um, certainly in my lifetime, the biggest breach of First Amendment rights uh, at scale that I, that I, that I've seen, and maybe it may be maybe one of the biggest breaches of First Amendment rights by the American government in American history. Um, you know, it's an authoritarianism that you'd expect out of China, not the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you what you alluded to earlier about what should have happened. It, if if I'm wrong, how hard is it to 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 just bring out facts and say Jay's wrong? Here are the facts. Here's why Jay's wrong. Have a discussion with me. Right. Have a discussion with people who who want to talk, who have similar ideas than me. If you don't want to talk to me, um, you don't win policy arguments. Not 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 like legitimately win them by silencing the opposition. You know, if one, once you've censored all the other opposition scientists that I've been calling us dissident scientists, um, once you've censored all the dissident scientists, well, now you have a consensus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's just it's just so antithetical to science. It's antithetical to American norms of free speech, and it led to bad policy. I think it actually killed people, Wesley. If we if we had won that argument. If it had been allowed to make that argument fairly in October of 2020, I don't think the schools would have closed in the fall of, through the fall of 2020 and the winter of 2020. And we would have spared children tremendous damage to their lives. You know, we're just in fact, the damage has been to their ability to learn. The damage has been to their social uh, socialization and, and the suicides and, and so forth. It, it's been a, a, a catastrophe for children. Absolutely. A catastrophe for children. We could have been avoided. I think we would have won that argument, Wesley, if it had been allowed to be fairly made. Do you think um, po it's possible now, this is uh, looking into someone's heart, that the people knew you might win that argument and that's why they didn't want to have it? I mean, I don't. I mean, someone who thinks to himself that I am the science, you know, or, or you know, <laughs> la science c'est moi, or, yeah, that, that, that person probably has no doubt that they win any argument. But the problem was like they thought that they were so right so morally correct, and that that any opposition to them was ipso facto dangerous. That that the public couldn't be allowed to hear the other side, or else they might be fooled into thinking the other side's correct. And of course, they can't be correct because you know we're not the science; they are. Yeah, I I, I even go further than that. I think that this was seized upon uh, as um, the beginning of a technocracy ruled by experts. And uh, that, because we saw that internationally and nationally, in fact, uh, Dr. Fauci once said that he thought that the W, he wrote in a, in a um, publication called Cell, that uh, the um, 
UN should strengthen the WHO and that they should basically be in charge of remaking the entirety. I mean, it was really a hubristic statement, but the entirety of human existence, um, just making everything new uh, so that we can respond better, in his opinion, to uh, potential future. And he wasn't talking about COVID. He was talking about future uh, pandemics. But the, the, the kind of control that, quote, the experts would have to have to remake the entirety of society is breathtaking. No, it's as if uh, we were going to restructure society, not on the principle of, you know, like the, 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 the Marxian ideas like this, we, re- we remake it so that uh, the, the, the proletariat uh, and, and its class distinctions fall away and we have this utopia, not so that, so that there's just, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the sort of like radical, radical economic inequality. It's not on the classical liberal idea of, 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 of inalienable rights. No, we remake it, all of society, in the, on the vision of minimizing disease risk. Um, yeah. You know, if that, if that is the principle you're going to argue for, argue it squarely and fairly. Let people decide, are there other priorities to life than just disease risk minimization? Um, I don't want to live in a society where, where everything is devoted to just that cause. I think I'm willing to take, when I'm 85 years old and my grandchildren come up to me, with a snotty nose, I'm going to hug them, Wesley. I don't care about the disease risk. When my when when I'm when my child is sick, I'm going to I'm going to be there for them in the same room with them. I don't care if about the disease risk. If I have to go to a funeral for someone I love, and be near people that might infect me, I'm still going to go to that funeral. Uh, I, we all have priorities in life, and we may balance them differently than Dr. Fauci does. The science is not in a position to tell me what I ought and ought not value. It may Yeah, and, and in terms of policy, the science of, of d- d- disease diminishment or minimiza- minimization should not be the only thing that gets discussed. Because as we've dis- as we've as you very ably described, there are other issues at, at play. Poor countries uh, not being able to uh, actually feed their population, children not being able to learn, a lack of socialization. Then, of course, there's the issue of elderly people isolated in nursing homes and the despair that causes uh, and so forth. Um, I I, want to get into one other issue about how you were treated, which is your work at Stanford. Uh, You said earlier in our conversation that uh, colleagues turned on you. Uh, and of course, you were well ensconced in Stanford's academic community, and then you come out with the Great Barrington Declaration, which is um, heterodox, let's say. And and and, 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 <laughs> and and you've described what happened as hell, uh, and we're talking about your work at Stanford. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it was it. it, it this is a little hard to talk about because it, it's, it's so close to me, but like, you know, I, I've been at Stanford for 36 years. Uh, it's home. Um, the last three years have been a, a deeply hostile work environment. It's been very, very difficult uh, locally. Um, I, I've been, man- I've, uh, there've been lots, a few attempts to try to get uh, some sort of policy discussion, an open policy forum run at Stanford, even by like the former president of the university tried to organize one in December, 2020, and he couldn't get anybody on the other side to like discuss with me uh, openly about COVID policy. Um, The the environment at Stanford has been such that, uh, you know, if you think about academic freedom, what does it mean? I mean, on one side, it means that I, that I shouldn't get fired for my views if I'm, if I'm expressing them, right? That's, I have tenure, I shouldn't get fired for them. And that's, in that sense, academic freedom is held. It's a kind of negative academic freedom where uh, they they refuse to like fire me even though they they desperately want to keep me me keep me quiet. I mean, actually, during, at one point during the pandemic, uh, uh, I got a direct order from uh, leaders in the medical school to stop appearing on TV and saying saying my views. Which, I mean, I think that's that that even violates even the negative academic freedom. But it more did, importantly, did, it would, and it doesn't sound to me like you obeyed that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I just. I had to speak. I mean, I, I, what is what's my purpose? What's the what's the purpose of my my uh, career for if I'm not speaking at a time like this when so squarely in my in, in the range of what I what I've devoted my life to? 
Um, uh, the other side of this is 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 is, uh, is even more important to me is is this idea of positive academic freedom. Um, Stanford, we have a privileged position in society. We give people, some people, the opportunity to spend most of their life researching, doing things to to like learn learn about the world, teach incredibly bright people in the next generation to be leaders. Um, we needed to set an example for society of open, good faith discourse on the most important policy questions that, 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 that are out there. And, that, and during COVID, that meant letting people hear debates between faculty members who supported ideas like the Great Barrington Declaration against people who supported more like zero COVID kinds of ideas or, or disease suppression kinds of ideas. These debates need to happen at places like Stanford at, at university. That's what the universities are for. Yeah. And they, they were scared to have these debates. They were so scared that people would hear these debates and then violate public health orders that they didn't have them. That is a deep failure of a place like Stanford university, a failure that, uh, that led to, uh, you know, I got junior colleagues would write to me and tell me I'm afraid to speak. I agree with they you. had no tenure, they were right to be afraid to speak. Yeah, I mean, and you know, that you know, I got a lot of like positive things saying, "Jake, Jake, keep talking from 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 uh, from 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 friends around the university." Um, but also, like, I'm afraid to speak. I'm afraid to talk. I'm afraid to like raise my head above the parapet. Uh, that is that is a deep, deep feel, and and you know, it led to like um, these like uh, there like one point there was like a a a, a petition that some faculty member who disagreed with me. In the Department of Epidemiology, she she sent it to her, the the chair of epidemiology, circulated to uh, to around the medical school, and a hundred people, including some friends of mine, signed it, um, criticizing me for some comments I'd made during uh, a round table with Governor DeSantis, where I where I pointed out correctly that there are no randomized studies showing that masking toddlers has any effect on disease on disease spread. Um, I, I, so, and you know, I just. Uh, the, they asked for the head of the university, like the, the president of the university, to censor me, censure me, uh, to essentially censure say, you. Yeah, um, it's it just it, it viol- I mean, that basically means that they're not going to engage with me in good faith. If they actually disagreed with me about something I said, well, why don't they come out with their name on it and say it? And then data. you guys can work it out and, and hash it out. That's what's supposed to happen at a university and within the scientific community. Yeah. In, instead, they're like asking the, uh, the, the, pow- the power authorities within the university to like take a side of, of, of them against me. It's like, you know, there, it's, it, it's, there's another aspect of this. Like it always bugged me. Like there is no high priest and high pope of science that can say this is right and this is wrong. That comes out over time as we reason with each other. Science is a human thing. It's an yes. art in that sense. Um, you know, they're, 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 the, uh, the, there's no omniscient creature in science or person in science that can say, yeah, for certain, this, per, this, this, I mean, you know, there's some things that are, almost everybody agrees on. You know, everybody agrees on. The, the Earth is, you know, roundish. Uh, the, the, uh, the gravity pull, pulls down with, uh, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, the earth goes around the sun. Um, but at the edge of at the frontier of science, there's deep controversies, a lot of un- uncertainty. And, all, and this was the frontier. How should we deal with this pandemic? A and, lot and of correcting cor- self-correction is, is also part of the scientific method. Absolutely. You know, why did Tony Fauci and Francis Collins act this way? Why did they react to the great Barrington Declaration this way? You know, the fundamental reason, I think, Wesley, is because they wanted to create an illusion of consensus that didn't exist. They wanted to make it people think that everyone agreed with them, everyone knowledgeable agreed with them. And the, and the thing ironic is, thing is it led to greater distrust. So you've seen a tremendous distrust now of public health authorities. You have people uh, distrusting the vaccine. Um, I... I have been vaccinated five times actually, but I've written repeatedly against vaccine mandates uh, because I think it is authoritarian and was certainly not justified as a matter of public policy because it doesn't stop the spread of the disease, just among other reasons. Uh, We're almost out of time, but I wanted to do something a little different. Um, Is the Great Barrington Declaration really quickly still relevant? Yes. 
Um, not so much for COVID, because I think now we're pretty much near the endemic point of it. Um, although actually, even for COVID, it might still be relevant because, you know, there are still vulnerable people. We should be devoting our resources to that um, for, rather than to, you know, masking, masking school codes or whatever. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's still relevant. Uh, the, 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 but the broader sense in which it's relevant is we have to adopt that, the principle of focus protection, not necessarily, you know, the next disease may not, it may not be older people who are the most vulnerable. It might be something like polio or young people are the most vulnerable. Right. Um, I, we have to adopt that as the principle of managing pandemics Rather than, and we have to get rid of lockdowns from our toolkit of pandemic management, or else I don't think liberal democracy can survive. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an interesting point. And so you're talking about now the Great Barrington Declaration as a framework for going forward in the future in terms of dealing with whatever comes around. And as you said, you know, when I was a kid, polio uh, was children who were most at risk, and I remember being terrified every summer. And I remember the. Uh, people in the children in the iron lungs but yeah. society did not come to a halt no what would happen was that they would close swimming pools in the summer when in places where polio was spreading or they would they would like in occasionally close schools for short periods of time um they even spread ddt in the streets actually back then to in because they thought mosquitoes might be spreading polio um incorrectly actually uh, I mean, but, you know, you can forgive the mistake because they were trying to do focus protection of young people. Maybe the DDT, that wasn't so focused. Um, you know, I, I think um, that principle is consistent with liberal democracy. Uh, the lockdown principle is not. It's an authoritarian idea. It's an idea that's that that, that, that with this monomaniacal kind of let's let's uh, let, let's let's all come together, treat infectious disease as a war and reorganize society around it around the eradication of this of this disease or other um we have to decide that as a society that we're never going to do that again or otherwise it will happen again over and over again now that's it's, that it's been loosed in the world um we need to make lockdown a dirty word wesley we need to make people understand the deep immorality of it and the and the and we have to make it so that uh public health understands the immorality of it and excise it from the toolkit of public health forever I would love to see a debate between you and, say, Ezekiel Emanuel or uh, Collins or Fauci on that very issue so that people could see the different ideas. But the other side, to you, uh, won't engage. And and that, to me, is a failure of science method because refusing to engage is not is not participating in a scientific enterprise. I mean, I've had a couple of debates. There was one with uh, this the head of public health at uh, at, Ye at Yale, uh, uh, Sten Vermond, who's a very, very sweet man who disagrees with me about about a, a lot of things on on, on on health policy and on um, on COVID health policy. And uh, if, 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 if listeners are interested, there's a the Soho Forum. Um, uh, things like last month in New York that they they can hear Stan's view and my view. I think those kinds of debates should have been happening the whole pandemic. Absolutely, and should continue going forward. Uh, we're out of time, but I want to do this very quickly. A real quick reaction. I'm going to use, say, some hot-button words uh, d during the pandemic and just get your quick reaction. Masks. Overused. Uh, vaccines. Really useful, should never have been mandated. Mandates. <laughs> oh, God, no. I think that they, <laughs> they crushed faith in vaccines. Natural immunity. Uh, why is it a conspiracy theory to say those words? And scientific consensus. Like unicorns don't really exist. Do you have an opinion on whether the virus is part of a gain-of-function experiment that escaped from Wuhan, or do you think it, it developed and evolved naturally? I don't know with any certainty. Uh, uh, I think the people, the scientists are like have legitimate disagreements about that. The evidence to date to me, looks very much like it, it, it probably was the, the result of a gain-of-function research uh, effort, uh, and there was a lab leak from that gain-of-function work. Um, but I, I, again, scientists are still debating this. As a result of everything we've discussed, do you think we are now better prepared to tackle the next serious pandemic or not? I think we're worse prepared to tackle the next pandemic. We are, now have lockdowns in our toolkits and there's a substantial number of people in public health who think that, 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 that there's still a good idea. That means that we are less well prepared because that, that tool will cause more harm than good 
in the next pandemic if we use it. What next for Dr. J. Bhattacharya? (laughs) I've been trying to like write papers from my old, uh, from my old life. And I find it hard to like with that. Right. Yeah. It's just, I I think I need to write some kind of memoir thing. It feels very self-indulgent, but I think some kind of memoir I've, I've, I've had the privilege of sitting at the front row seat of a lot of the most important decisions that were made during the pandemic and debates that were had during the pandemic. I think I need to write something around that. I think that would be a very important contribution. Well, Jay, thank you for being with me. And I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Wesley. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.